Well, again, it's good to be with all of you. Um, as Bob shared, the retreat was just a, a time of great joy, a time that was very edifying and encouraging, and just a whole lot, very fun, very uh, enjoyable time. I think uh, I will cherish it for a long time. I consider it our twice a year retreats, a spiritual vacation with my closest friends. That, that's what it was, um, this past retreat. A couple of highlights for me. Um, I gotta begin by confessing before the body that, uh, is Thomas here this morning? Thomas Kang? He's not here, I can't confess to him. Well, Daniel Lee and Daniel Pio threw him into the uh, ocean and he lost his glasses and his wallet. Um, though they threw him in, it was my idea. <laughs> we wanted to get him back for making us play, play that game where we had to hit each other with newspapers. <laughs> so, who knew he had a wallet and glasses with him? Well, I confess, it was me. Um, second highlight, and Bob mentioned this in our last session, was our family feud. I mean, that was just a riot. That was just so fun. The question was, the greatest spiritual weakness of Cornerstone. <laughs> And it was like, someone said, lack of evangelism. Good answer, good answer. And I could have sworn I heard somebody turn to the person and say, you know, I don't evangelize. That's got to be on there. Right? <laughs> or it was prayer or pride. And that was just that was so funny. We could laugh at ourselves, but those are my outlines for a sermon that's up and coming. Right? Four things we got to work on. And probably the final and the greatest highlight was teaching by Dr. Pettigrew. That's his life's work. I mean, he wrote a book for seminarians, for professors to dialogue at that level. That's his life's work. And for him to come and teach us the Word of God personally and to avail himself of Q&A, I mean, that's huge. And one of the questions that we got on Q&A was, if everybody is indwelt with the Holy Spirit, why are there weak believers? What a good question. And you know, Professor Pettigrew and I, we missed the most obvious one. We gave several answers, and I'm driving home. I just almost hit myself in the head. James, you, you didn't give the most obvious one, which is, there are weak believers because they don't understand the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? They have a wrong understanding, wrong doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And that is why they're so weak. Instead of being led by the Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, they are dependent upon rules, on emotional experiences, or some kind of formula for spirituality, and they neglect or ignore or abuse the work of the Holy Spirit because they have wrong doctrine. And that is why, for me, the retreat, the highlight was a teaching. Because he taught us correctly the biblical understanding of, of the Holy Spirit's work. It enables us to break away from our spiritual weakness and that we can rightly pursue true spirituality, true maturity in Christ. If you guys weren't at the retreat, or if you guys missed a session, you guys were there, but you guys missed it. You guys were somewhere else in your mind. You want to get these tapes and review them because they're so foundational to true spirituality. Well, as I said, the retreat was a great joy. I'm going to relive many moments for years to come, and um, we're just going to take a, a, maybe a month break from the study of John and do just uh, look at different passages in the Bible and do studies. And this morning, I want to look at 1 Timothy 1, 
1 through 17 and just start us off by talking about the power of memory. The power of memory. I don't know if you guys thought about this, but I'm sure all of us love to relive the past. You guys do that? You know, you guys make a shot and go home and you relive that shot again and again. I know some of the brothers do, definitely. Maybe it's a memory of, you know, just your friend, old friends. Good times you guys had in high school or college. You relive that. Or maybe it's when you trusted in Christ. When you first became a believer. That's vivid in your mind. And times of discouragement, times of difficulty, or even times of joy. You want to relive when God saved you. Maybe it's your wedding. For, for Serena and I, one memory that's really, you know, ingrained in our memory is the birth of Elizabeth. I'm sure all the parents here can agree. I'm so glad I was there. And just to see the birth of our child. And just, it's just an amazing thing that will stay with me forever. Or some other significant event in your life. You relive that, you know. Now, memory is a funny thing. There are things in your, in your life that you desperately want to remember. You have a hard time remembering. At the same time, there are things in our lives that we desperately want to forget. We want to erase them from our hard drive. Permanent delete. But we find it very difficult. There are certainly many things in my life that I would like to forget. And of all the memories that I want to erase, top of the list are the memories of my sinfulness before God saved me. Maybe you can identify with this a little bit. You know, all the dirty, wicked, and offensive things I said and did before I became a Christian. Man, if I can wipe, that, wipe all those uh, things from my mind, I would not miss it at all. You know, how I hurt my parents, how I hurt my friends, how I discouraged my pastors in the church. You know, my youth pastor, I need to go and buy them lunch or something because... I just give him a horrible time. You know how reprobate, depraved I was. I had such a polluted tongue. I was so boastful. I was so full of pride. You know, once in a while, right before I go to sleep, you know, I remember all of a sudden, you know, like memory is sequential. You start here and you start like tying things together and I end up remembering a sin that I committed when I was in high school, before I was a Christian. And you know what? I can't even sleep. I become disgusted with myself. I feel like I just committed that sin even though it was like 10 years ago. You know, I want to cast these memories to the depths to be lost forever, never to be regained, but they're still fresh in my memory. You know, even as I go to speak at other churches, they want me to share my testimony and I'm really resident, reticent to openly share my testimony because I don't want to recall my sinful life. It is embarrassing. It is downright shameful. It is humiliating. Yet, as we study Paul's life and his writings, especially here, this section of 1 Timothy chapter 1, we see Paul openly sharing his sinfulness before God saved him. He is in no way embarrassed, ashamed, or humiliated by the state that he was before God saved him. He is almost boastfully recalling his depravity before Christ. This testimony is repeated often in his letters. Galatians 1, 13-14, he writes, he says, My previous way of life in Judaism, 
I intensely persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. He also tells the church at Philippi, Philippians 3, 5 through 8, I was circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, a tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for legalistic righteousness, legalism that I'm fighting today, at that time, I was faultless, says Paul. Paul is a man who was determined not to forget what he was before he trusted in Christ. Instead of trying to forget what he was, he actively recalled these to his mind every chance he got. So for Paul, his sinful state before Christ didn't hinder him from pursuing Christ, didn't hinder him from the prize. For Paul, his sinful state before Christ was his prize. That was his crown. That was his boast. Right. His wicked state before a holy God was to him and to us a source of constant hope, encouragement, and strength. And so I believe by his example, he is calling us, he's telling us, he's commanding us not to run from our past, but to embrace it in light of God's great salvation. Now open your Bibles and go to 1 Timothy 1. I want to briefly look at verses 3 through 11. In this passage, you know, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a young pastor at the church at Ephesus. And he's writing this pastoral epistle on how he ought to lead and minister the household of God. How Christians are to conduct themselves in this new administration called the church. And the first thing he talks about, first instruction he gives to Timothy, concerns false teachers. Look again with me in to verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Paul tells Timothy, there's no debate going on, Timothy. There's no dialogue. There's no discussion. You're in a position of authority. You've been sent by the Apostle Paul, who was sent by Christ. My instruction to you is command these men to stop. To, to desist teaching these false doctrines. They're errant. They're wrong. They're against God. Verse 5. These promote, rather, he says, controversies rather than um, God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. And then he says to them in verse 7, They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. These false teachers, have, they don't even have a clue concerning the purpose of the law. And he outlines in verse, verses 8 through 11, the purpose of God's law. We know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, 
ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane, those who kill their fathers, mothers, murderers, immoral men, homosexuals and kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. The law was given not for speculation, not to find hidden messages, not to find some uh, secret prophecies. The law was given towards the unrighteous that they might stop violating the law of God. They might start obeying God's word. So the first thing he confronts is false teaching and false teachers. And it is in this context, Paul does a surprising thing. Instead of continuing on and teaching right doctrine, he moves on to his own testimony. Paul moves on and he gives his personal testimony, interweaving with it the gospel of Christ. It's a very personal passage. You will note that in just these six verses, 12 through 17, Paul refers to himself 11 times. I, 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 Paul, myself, 11 times. A very personal passage. He shares the gospel. He starts by sharing the gospel in verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And then he launches into his testimony. From this passage, we find four reasons why Paul remembered his testimony. Four reasons why Paul remembered his testimony. And four reasons why we ought to. Four reasons why we ought never forget how God saved us, the state we were we were in before God rescued us from sin. Well, let's go to verse 12, and here we find the first reason. It says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength. I'll stop right there. He begins his testimony by thanking God for giving him strength. The Greek word is dunamis, dynamite. That God has given him the dynamite-like power in his inner being to, to trust in Christ, to be sanctified, and to minister the gospel, to serve the church. Therefore, every time he recalled what God did in saving him, he was filled with gratitude, he was filled with thanksgiving. Because before in Judaism, he had no strength. He fought with all his might. To be righteous in the sight of a holy God. But he was without strength. He couldn't do it. He couldn't obey the law perfectly. But in Christ, God gave him the strength. Whereupon all his sins were forgiven and he was saved. So every time he remembered his testimony, it produced gratitude. Probably the lowest of human characteristics, the basis of sins. Maybe it's ingratitude. Maybe the highest virtue that a man can have is gratitude. You could say that. And for Paul, he remembered his testimony because it produced in him a thankful heart. Verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength. And he says a source of Paul's strength. That's what he's saying. The source of his Salvation, the source of his sanctification, the source of his ministry is not in himself. But he says it was given to him by Christ, by the Lord. 
you know, you have to say, you know, in terms of perseverance, in, per, in terms of mental strength, even physical strength. I mean, just a cursory study in the book of Acts, we would have to conclude that Paul was a strong and powerful guy. You know, I used to watch this show years ago. I haven't seen it lately. I don't know if they're still on, but if you guys have cable, you watch ESPN. There's a show that they, I don't know, all hours of the day, they broadcast the show, The World's Strongest Man Competition. You guys ever watch this? I mean, these are guys, they lift cars, they pull buses, they bend steel bars. It's a competition, right? They look around absurdly large rocks. There are big men with big arms, big chests, big shoulders, big legs, and often with big bellies. Right? They get their strength from there, I think, right? One competitor's name is Gary Mitchell. He's had 10 knee operations, bicep tears in both arms. He's had two herniated discs removed. He recently tore his shoulder as he lost his balance trying to push over a 2,000 pound car in a competition. So I'm not a doctor, I don't know what these things all mean, right? Doctors can explain, but it tells me that must have hurt, right? That's a lot of work. This guy's a tough guy. And we hear about guys like this in the NFL, you know, Ronnie Lott, right? I think he dislocated his finger or broke his finger, but he continued to play. Playing with a fractured hand, Muhammad Ali fought, he finished his fight with a broken nose and a boxer, that's pretty tough. But he continued to fight. Well, these are tough guys, but they had nothing on Paul. I mean, Paul was a man. When it gets down to it, it's not about physical strength, right? I mean, pain is pain. Physical, demanding physically, that's, it all boils down to mental toughness. All boils down to your intestinal fortitude, your inner conviction. And in that arena, no one surpassed Paul. If any man suffered greatly in ministry, and if any man suffered and was undeterred in his gratitude and contentment towards God, it was Apostle Paul. We find from 2 Corinthians 11, 23-27, the details of his great trials while he was preaching the gospel. 2 Corinthians 11, 23-27. He writes to them and he says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And when he reflects on all of that, his response is gratitude. His response is contentment. It's thanksgiving. Remember Acts 14, 19-20. Paul is proclaiming the gospel in Lystra. 
And some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, from another city, and they won the crowd over. They took Paul outside the city walls and they stoned him. And they dragged him and threw him off the dirt. And thinking he was dead, they left him. Well, what does Paul do? Does he whine? Does he complain? Does he go home saying, it's over? Right? I'm done. This is the thanks I gave for playing the gospel? No. What does Paul do? Verse 20. He got up, dusted himself, and he went back into the city to continue in his ministry. He is like the energizer bunny. He keeps going and going and going. He had intense strength and stamina. Unparalleled. And you know, don't we get humbled by this guy? As we look at the reality of our, our spiritual walk, and we've got to say, we get discouraged too easily. You know, we get disheartened too fast. We don't know really the definition of perseverance. We don't know what it's like to suffer and endure suffering for the Lord. Paul was spiritually strong. And what does he say? He gives thanks to God. He testifies, it's not me. My salvation is not because of my righteousness. My sanctification is not because of my godliness. And my endurance in the work of the Lord is not because of my strength. He gives thanks to God. He gives all the glory and credit to God. Because for without God, without Christ giving him strength, he will not be saved, not be sanctified, and not be in ministry. That's the first reason Paul remembered his testimony. The first reason you and I must remember our testimony. So that we would be grateful to God, give thanks to God. Right. Well, back to 1 Timothy and then, verse 13, Paul continues and he recalls his former life before Christ. I thank God for considering me faithful and putting me into service. Verse 13, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. So the second reason Paul remembered his testimony was that he kept them from pride. He kept them from pride. Now I'm reading a lot of the Old Testament right now. And man, I'm, I'm just loving the Old Testament. And I'm seeing a lot of things that I haven't that I'm seeing maybe for the first time. I'm seeing a lot of the, the weaknesses, the frailties, the outright depravity of these Old Testament saints that we revered growing up in the church. I mean, Abraham had a serious sin problem called lying. Right? Remember he told the king that Sarah was his sister? God tells the king, no, she's not his sister, she's his wife. The king goes to him and confronts him. Why did you lie to me? And what does Abraham say? Oh, she's my half-sister. It's kind of true. 
you know, he's still lying. There is nothing in the Bible, nowhere in the scriptures, ever mentions, and that could, and that would be incest. That would still be against. That'd be still wrong. So he's still lying to protect himself, and saying, "Oh, it's only a half lie." Right? You see, Jacob. Yeah, he deceives his own father to get his to get his brother's blessing. We look at Moses as a murderer. He misrepresents God by striking the rock twice, preventing him from going into the promised land. We look at Saul. And when Samuel came looking for Saul, Saul was like, I'm from the smallest tribe, the Benjaminites. And we're from the smallest clan of Benjamin. How can I lead Israel? And when Samuel comes to present Saul before Israel, What's Saul doing? He's hiding in the jars. He's so afraid. He's so timid. He has to command Saul, will you come out here? You're the king. From that lofty position where he's humble before God, undeserving of being a king, you see his great and steady downfall where he rejects God. Rejects God's prophet Samuel. And we see the kingdom being transferred over to David. And you know, David's a tragic figure. I mean, we love the Psalms. We love David before Bathsheba. But you look at David after Bathsheba and just, you know, God said, God proclaims to Nathan, from within your own household, I will bring forth evil. And that's what happens. His son Amnon uh, rapes Tamar. His own daughter is raped. What does King David do? Does he enact justice? Does he uphold the law of God? I mean, Amnon used David to bring Tamar to him, right? He said, Dad, you know, have my sister bring, come to me for I'm ill, and have her make her, her, her delicious cakes. And, and David commands Tamar to do this. So, so Amnon uses his own dad in this immoral act. So what does David do? He's passive. He just gets angry. and doesn't do anything. His own son Absalom commits murder. What does David do? Nothing. Later on, Absalom starts a rebellion against David. Right? Stirs a, 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 a mutiny where he rouses the troops against David. And what does David do? He's running away from Jerusalem without shoes. In sackcloth and ashes, he's running away from the city of Jerusalem. And later on, when he finds out his son is dead, instead of rewarding his troops, instead of praising God, he mourns the death of his son who tried to kill him, who was his enemy. And out of all his sons... All the heirs that would rule Judah, out of all the sons, heirs of David, only one king was righteous. Solomon saw the example of David. He married with foreign women, worshipped the idols. All the sons after that, they were all wicked kings, except for one, Josiah. I mean, David wasn't this, you know, pretty boy, righteous man. I mean, there's a tragic figure where he turned away from God. I mean, look at the, all through the Old Testament. Even the apostles 
like Peter, you see their faults. But again, back to Paul. I mean, where's Paul's weakness? Where's Paul's sinfulness? Where's his depravity? I mean, I'm sure it's there. We see hints of it here and there, but through it all, the New Testament portrays Paul as a model of spirituality, as a model Christian. I mean, Paul was a spiritual giant, a man mightily used by God. I mean, he surpasses these Old Testament saints, head and shoulders above them, in his humility, in his character, and his service to, for the Lord. God used him to write a bulk of the New Testament. He was used to convert masses of people. He planted numerous churches. And yet, in his writings, one thing stands out. Paul's own insistence to remember his own sinfulness. Right? Paul. Right? You know, the Old Testament saying somebody else is writing about them, recording these sins. Maybe David wanted to tell Samuel, can you leave that part out? And First uh, Saint Chronicles is very noble and glossed over. They don't mention um, David's sinfulness. But in Samuel, man, it's just up close and personal, detailed account of David's sin. And David, I'm sure, can you leave those parts out? But what does Paul do? Nobody's writing about Paul. Paul's writing about himself. And he doesn't gloss himself over. No, he writes with vivid detail of his own sinfulness. Because that kept his pride at bay. His knowledge of his life from which he was saved kept him humble. Look at verse 13. He uses descriptive words here. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, he spoke blasphemy. The word means abusive speech. Mockery directed against God. He was a blasphemer. He says he was a persecutor. He persecuted and harassed the church. He was an insulter of the church. He flung hot and angry words at Christians, accusing them of crimes against God. He hated the church. And then he says that he was a violent aggressor. The Greek word is hubris. A violent man. A brutal violence. It indicates a kind of arrogant sadism. It, des it describes a man, a man who inflicts pain out of sheer joy. He, he had perverse pleasure in inflicting pain against Christians. And when they wept, and when they suffered, he enjoyed it. He was a violent aggressor. Paul was not content with just insulting the church. He led a legal persecution of the church in a sadistic attempt to stamp out the Christian church. And that is why he says here that he is the worst of all sinners. And because he is inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's true. Of all the sinners in the history of all the world, worse than men like Hitler, men like Stalin, it's Paul. He is the worst. Because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And this is what God says. Why did he remember this? Why did he keep, keep this in the forefront of his mind? Because that kept him humble. You guys know about John Newton, right? As a pastor centuries ago. He was a slave trader who was converted and he became a pastor. He's the man who wrote Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 
I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see there's a movement now to remove that word wretch from that hymn because it lowers self-esteem. We don't want to call ourselves wretches. Right? Save a man like me. Right? John Newton is, is crying on top of his lungs in heaven, yelling at this movement. Well, he wrote a text in great letters and fastened it above his study where he could not fail to see it. He wrote, Thou shalt remember that thou was a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. His own epitaph, he wrote, Once an infidel and libertine, a traitor of slaves in Africa, was by the mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had so long labored to destroy. End quote. John Newton recalled his own testimony that he would be humble. And that is what Paul is doing here. Well, you might be thinking, well, James, well, that's Paul. You know, he, he is the worst of all sinners. He is a blasphemer, persecutor, a violent man. But I got saved at seven years old, right? You know, I never killed anybody. I never hurt a soul. I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm actually pretty good. And I can't really identify with this sermon, James, because, I mean, Paul was a real bad sinner. I was just kind of an average sinner. And what? If, if, if you entertain those thoughts, you are like the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3, 15 through 17. I know your deeds. You are lukewarm. I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Why are they lukewarm? Because, verse 17, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. They're lukewarm because they thought spiritually they're okay. Spiritually they're doing fine. They're not that bad. And Christ says, you do not realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That without Christ, before Christ, all sinners were in the same predicament. That we were all sick and disgusting, deserving the full wrath and judgment of God. Likened by Edwards, the life of an unconverted sinner is like a spire hanging over a raging fire. Hanging on by a single thread, and that was our predicament. We couldn't do anything to be saved. The thread will break any second. We were equally dead in sin before God saved us. Romans 3, 10, 11, There is no unrighteous, not even one, no one who seeks God. Job 25, 4-6, How then can a man be righteous before God? How can one born a woman be pure? If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in God's eyes, how much less man who is but a maggot, a son of man who is only a worm, that's the true condition of every person before Christ. Paul recalled his sinfulness, which caused him to be humble. We need to reflect and remember our, our sinfulness before Christ, for a holy God, that we might be sin, that we might be humble. Thirdly, memory of his sinfulness reminded Paul and reminded Timothy and reminds us that there is hope for everyone. Even these false Christians. Paul remembered his sinfulness, his testimony, so that he might be a constant encouragement and example to others. Verse 15. 
it is a trustworthy statement. Here is the gospel, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this reason I found mercy. In order that in me, as the worst sinner, this is why God saved him, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. This is awesome. The word display here, it means to outline, first draft, sketch plan. Paul is saying is that what happened to him is a sketch, an outline, a model, if you will, of what will happen for everyone who trusts in Christ. And God saved me so that I might be, that I might de demonstrate his perfect patience, an example for those who would trust in him. So what is Paul saying? Paul saying, if someone might, like me, the worst of all sinners, can be saved, can be changed, and can be used in this manner, if the worst guy can be used like this, there is hope for everyone. Timothy, there is hope for you. These false teachers, there is hope for them. For all of us, there is hope for us. And hope for all the non-believers we know today. We say, oh, this guy is beyond reach. No, that's wrong. If Paul can be saved, sanctified, and used, there's hope for us all. Right. Hope not as a wish, but a confidence that God provides through His Word. You know, we had a guy get saved in our church three years ago. I don't think he's not, he's not here today. Min's not here, right? I can talk about him then, right? You know, I remember Ben got saved, and it was just it was pretty dramatic. You know, he told me afterwards that how he hated me. I, I had no idea. You know, he, he just hated me, and he says, now he loves me. Oh, praise God. <laughs> I don't like people hating me, right? But God saved him was dramatic. So one of the brothers at our church, all of a sudden started praying for his brother, who was, was lost in sin, buying him books, asking us to pray for him. I said, what's going on? He said, if men can get saved, <laughs> if God can change men, there's hope for my brother. Right? Same thing that's happening here. Right? Well, that's not bad towards men, right? That's good towards men, right? God's grace. Well, same thing that's happening here. Right? God's forgiveness of Paul's sins displayed God's unlimited patience as an example for those who believe on him and receive eternal life. So in the context, he's talking about false teachers. Timothy, don't give up on them. Command them, teach them, pray for them, love them, because there's hope for them because I'm saved. Well, in our context, that means all people, if they are still alive, there is still hope. If Saul, blasphemer, persecutor, or violent violent aggressor can be saved by the gospel and there is hope for our fathers and mothers, our brothers and sisters, hope for our neighbors, hope for our relatives, everyone we know who is not a Christian, there's hope. And that is what Paul is saying. Paul says, look at me, look at my life and gain strength. Reminds us of the power of the gospel, the power of God's truth to save lost sinners. Well, so Paul remembered his testimony to thank God for gratitude. Second, to keep him from pride. Thirdly, that he might be a constant encouragement 
to believers. And then finally, number four, Paul remembered his sinfulness so that all glory would go to God and God alone. It is the, one of the, the paradoxical things of Christianity. That when we meditate on our sinfulness, it gives glory to God. Right? That's, you could bank on that. That's truth. I mean, that's, that's, that's faithful. That's the Word of God. As you reflect and ponder and mourn and, and grieve over your sins, to that degree, you give God the glory. Right? Verse 17, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It is the most appropriate response of Paul as he recalled the sinfulness. Having begun the passage with thanksgiving, he closes it with a doxology, a praise to glorify God. Because as he considers his depravity, his sinfulness, he says, all glory to God, all praise to God. He neither wants nor deserves any honor or any glory. Remember Acts 14.8. Paul healed a man. A man who was lame from birth. He had never walked. Paul looked directly at him and he said, Stand on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, done, they shouted, The gods had come down to us in human form. And they began to worship Paul and Barnabas. And Paul rushed out to the crowds and he shouted, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news. Telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. End quote. Paul refused worship. Paul refused it. He rejected it. He was saying he's just a messenger to tell the world that our God reigns. That it is all God. All glory to God. From the start to the end. There is such a temptation for ministers whether you're setting up chairs or you're an elder of a church, temptation to think too highly of ourselves. If we're being used by God, if we're serving God in some significant way, great temptation to believe our own hype, the hype of our own righteousness, will not for Paul. He constantly reminded himself of his utter sinfulness and how by grace alone he was saved. Therefore, he gave all glory, honor to God, untouched. I love this doxology in verse 17. To the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And then he ends it with, Amen. Amen. Guys, brothers and sisters, do you remember your testimony? Do you have a testimony? You don't. Good possibility, and you're not a Christian. Good possibility that you hate thinking about sin. You wanna. You're just living your life, just erasing sin, distract, living in distraction, listening to music, movies, talking to people, that so you want to think about sin. Your life is filled with pride. 
and you're just ungrateful. Ungrateful to God, to your parents, to your friends. Ingratitude is a character mark of your life. And for anything that you do in your life, you don't give glory to God, you give glory to yourself. These are marks that you're not a Christian. You don't have a testimony because God has not saved you. Trust in Christ today. Repent of your sins. May God might save you today. Um, for the believers here, do you remember your testimony? You know, how wretched you were when God saved you? You know, you might not have a, such a dramatic testimony like Paul. Right? Your testimony might not cause others to cry, but that's not important. What's important is this. Does your testimony of how the awesome and holy God of Scripture saved you, undeserving sinner, does it make you cry? That's the issue. It's not, does it move others? Does it move you? Does it humble you? Does it destroy your pride, your self-righteousness? Does it give you strength for greater service and commitment to God? Does it cause you to give glory to God for all things? First to last, to God alone. Let's pray. Lord, it is uh, my prayer that our depravity will be vividly recalled in our minds. That we will never forget the pit from which you saved us. Lord, we just marvel at your grace, marvel at your mercy, your goodness towards your people, towards all of us. Our hearts are broken and mourning over our own sins, but at the same time, our hearts are filled with joy. We rejoice this morning. We want to proclaim with our loudest voice that you reign, that you are good, that you are faithful because of your work in our lives. We thank you for uh, the word of God. May we all recall our testimonies this week give praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen.